Hey, good morning. How is everyone? Just a quick reminder, next week after church is a, our first big picnic of the summer. That means you, after church, you stop and grab your favorite fast food, and we all meet at um, the Park South, or West, um, what is it, Spring Canyon, Spring Canyon Park, and Lord willing, it'll be not raining, <laughs> so should be a really fun time, and I want to uh, also reiterate Happy Father's Day to everyone here. Um, if you have a father and you still don't know exactly what to get them, it's not too late. Okay, you have a few hours left, and just as a service to you all who still need to find a gift for the dad in your life, we're going to take a little poll to see what dads really want the most. Okay, so you dads, I want you to give a cheer when I read which thing would be the first on your list, and the loudest cheer will be number one. You ready? Okay, so here's, here's the cheer meter right here. A combo hot dog and bun toaster. Come on. All right, they get better. Beef jerky flower bouquet. Come on, let's hear the cheers. It's got to be worth something. Third dinner at the new Casa Bonita. Okay, we're getting there. A hammock and a nap. Yeah! <laughs> okay, fifth, the ultimate book of dad jokes. Oh, I'm not hearing any cheers out there. So I'm, I don't know what you guys want for Father's Day. Steak dinner. Okay, this next one's got, got to be a winner. A year supply of beard oil. Oh, come on, come on. We're not winning. We only have a couple left. Denver Nuggets Champions T-shirt. Woo! You guys are lame. Nobody wants any stuff. Okay. Last but not least, your families love appreciation and respect. Well, I think our Heavenly Father would definitely choose his family's love, appreciation, and respect. Amen? But unfortunately, as we continue through the book of Exodus, that just wasn't the case. You know, it, it's, it's pretty easy to look down on the Israelites. We're, we're studying them. We're, we're reading about them. We look down on them for their grumbling and complaining, right? One pastor I had years ago consistently referred to the Israelites as the Grumbleites. The Grumbleites. And as we go from Exodus through Deuteronomy, it is really hard to find anything, really any qualities that are redeeming in these people. Most of what they do is grumble and complain. And it's so easy for us to think you know, uh, and to look down on them and to judge them and, and to think to ourselves, how can a people of God be so stubborn, so entitled, so unbelieving 
and so ungrateful. I mean, they've just been delivered from 400 years of cruel slavery. They just learned that the God of their fathers really cares about them and knows them, understands them. They just witnessed miracle after miracle by this God against Egypt. They had just left Egypt with a massive haul of gold and silver that was just given to them. They just walked through a body of water with an average depth of 1,600 feet. That's taller than the Shanghai World Financial Center. And that's, the, that's just the average depth. And their greatest mortal enemy, the Egyptian army, was now completely destroyed, and they didn't even have to fight a single soldier. Holy cow, did they have a lot to be thankful for. And yet, just three days later, three days later, after this mind-boggling deliverance, we see them complaining. Of course, much of their discomfort was a result of them failing various tests that God gave them. Tests that simply required that they trust God. But even in their disobedience, God still faithfully protected them and provided for them. And it's hard for us to know what, what we would have done, you know, had we been in their sandals. But let's try. What if the next time you chose to disobey God or distrust God, God told you that for the next 40 years, you and your family would have nothing to drink but lukewarm water, nothing to wear but what you're currently wearing. You'd have nothing to eat but plain white bread, and you'd have to go out and gather it yourself six days a week. You'd have a constant nagging sense of God's displeasure being under his discipline. You'll live in a hot desert with no shade and temperatures consistently in the hundreds, no baths, no showers, no books, no TV, no stove or microwave. You're, you're just in survival mode, camping and hiking in a wasteland for 40 years. And you know that you will wander just aimlessly without destination until you die. In fact, the sole purpose of the journey is just to allow time for your whole generation to die. If you really found yourself in those circumstances, how tempted would you be to complain, to lose hope, and to resign yourself to despair? If you're anything like me, you probably grumble and complain about far less things, right? I mean, everybody is a whiner at times, right? Even some of our biggest heroes, <laughs> they whine. One survey from 2019 found the average American complains three times a day. Seems pretty... Conservative, I think it could be more than that. And less than half of us think that we could go a whole day without at least one complaint. But you know, throughout history, people have complained about things like, you know, invading armies or famines or 
deadly plagues and diseases, high infant mortality and deep poverty. But today, you know what the top 10 things we complain about the most are? Bad customer service. (laughs) Telemarketers and robocalls. People who cut in line. Feeling cold. What's that little, the tiniest violin in the world? Playing, my heart bleeds for you. Packages or letters that don't show up on time. Traffic. Trouble connecting to Wi-Fi. Litter and people who litter. The weather and feeling too hot. My goodness. The Israelites didn't complain about any of those things, did they? They were complaining about a lack of food, a lack of water, food and water, physical necessities, without which they would literally die. If God was so offended by their complaints about physical necessities that he killed them, how much more offended do you think he is by our frivolous complaints over non-necessities? Complaining in America is like one of our national pastimes. It's like baseball. And it's contagious. You know, if you read the text we're going to look at, it seems as though the non-Israelites that actually journeyed with the Israelites at times were the ones who started and instigated the complaining. And then the Israelites just kind of followed suit. They caught on and they, they, they joined that complaint. You see, when the culture is one of complaining, you don't even often under, realize what you're doing. And with our technology and social media, we can now whine and complain and vent to an audience of hundreds, even thousands of people at a time. Don't be this guy. So when we read about what God did in response to the Israelites complaining, it's an absolute wonder that he doesn't just strike us all dead with lightning bolts. My goal this morning is not just to impress on us all afresh that murmuring and grumbling and complaining is bad. Hopefully we know that. But that they dishonor God in a most profound way that we underestimate. And that like so many sins, it's not just enough for us to refrain from complaining. We need to replace it with something else, something good. And over the course of of my life, I've had to learn the hard way. God has repeatedly brought me back to the vital importance of at least three of those good things. And they are humility, gratitude, and dependence. And we could all add to that list, but these have been just core for me. These are things that, by and large, the two million Israelites utterly lacked. They lacked them. And I know that I have forgotten them and fallen short of them times without number. You know, I used to think that pessimism or, you know, being a kind of a glass half empty kind of person, 
It was just a personality trait, something that people are just born with. I've since come to realize that when you take into account the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God, and the promises of God, that pessimism, gloominess, despair are nothing less than utterly sinful. Let's call it for what it is. Utterly sinful. They are a willful denial of the very existence and character of the living God. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul warns us that what we are about to read this morning about the Israelites was intentionally written down for our benefit so that we might learn from their mistakes. That's the main point of today's passage. So how about we pray? Let's ask God to give us more humility and gratitude and dependence. Well, Father, uh, just right off the bat, I feel the need to confess to you that I am largely an entitled, self-centered, ungrateful person. I may not complain a lot out loud or in public, but I can murmur under my breath or harbor a complaining spirit. And I pray you'd help each of us this morning to evaluate our heart's attitude toward you, toward others, toward life, and to adopt the mindset that King David had when he said, the Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. All our grumbling is a result of our wants and our expectations in this life. But if you are truly our shepherd, then you are in complete control of every aspect of our lives. So remind us of that afresh this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've got probably almost three chapters this morning. So we're not going to read all of that. I'm just going to highlight some of the instances that the congregation of Israel grumbled and complained. The first one is Exodus 15, verses 22 to 24. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Again, this was just three days after they had witnessed firsthand God part the Red Sea. After just 72 hours, all their singing, all their rejoicing was turned to angry protest. Wow. You see, their problem was not that they lacked drinkable water. Their problem was they they did not know the God who had just saved them, had just saved their lives. I mean, for 400 years, granted, they had functionally had no religion. They'd been living in a a pagan, pluralistic world God's, you know, uh, society and culture, no religion, no religious leader. All they really had were oral traditions from regarding God from their distant forefathers. But do we struggle in trusting God with things as mundane as water? Not usually, no. 
But during COVID, <laughs> fearful people plundered grocery stores for water and toilet paper. Doesn't take much to trigger a fear response or panic, even in modern day Americans. It was no different in Jesus' day. That's why Jesus frequently taught things like we read in Matthew 6, 31 and 32. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need all of them. Why should I not worry about having enough toilet paper when the next pandemic comes? Because God is not just some, you know, random generic deity out there that we're supposed to dutifully worship. Of all days, we we should remember today, God is my father. He's a father who instinctively cares for me. Instinctively. And he already knows my needs even before I ask. A father who has loved me and bought me and even adopted me forever. Well, despite the Israelites grumbling, God graciously makes this bitter water drinkable. And then he leads them to 12 springs of fresh water along with 70 date palm trees. That surely taught Israel the goodness and trustworthiness of God, right? Wrong. About a month later, the very next thing we read is in Exodus 16, 2 and 3. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Notice the whole congregation grumbled. Not against God, but against Moses and Aaron. And Moses corrects them on this just a few verses later when he tells them that their grumblings are really not against he and Aaron, but against God. So the people have been forced to go vegan for a whole month. And they start to complain. They actually say they would rather have died in Egypt than live as vegans. I get it. I mean, after a month with a good burger, I'd probably be obsessively dreaming about meat pots too. Egypt had a lot of meat pots. I mean, it was like Rhodesio Grill. Tasty, unlimited meats of all kinds. And it had fresh, daily baked bread, just like Subway. Life was so good there. Never mind that they used to feed our sons to the crocodiles in the Nile. Never mind that we were slaves there. Our parents were slaves. Grandparents were slaves. Our kids and grandkids are slaves. And all we will ever be are slaves subhuman property, the scum of society. But following God is so bad. 
so bad that we'd really rather go back there to Egypt. In fact, we just wish we had died in Egypt rather than starving out here in the desert. To hear what that sounds like to God? In fact, you know, if I was God, I would not feel compelled to lift one more finger for these people's benefit. But do you know what God does? He miraculously rains down bread from heaven upon them without fail for 40 years. Most of us can't even begin to comprehend what that means. He made water flow from a rock and their clothes never wore out. So let me ask you this question. How do you handle... There's that. Next. Oops. Back. How do you handle a horde of hungry Hebrews habitating in a hot desert? First... Two to three million people needed 2,000 tons or four million pounds of food each day. To bring that much food each day would require the equivalent of three freight trains each a mile long. In the desert, they needed firewood to cook and keep warm. And each day, this would take 4,000 tons or eight million pounds of wood. A few more freight trains each a mile long. And they needed water. If they only had enough to drink and wash a few clothes, it would take 11 million gallons of water each day. And a train with, a tank, with tank cars 1,800 miles long just to bring water. That's a train that would stretch from Fort Collins to Havana, Cuba every day. And each time they camped, they needed a campground two-thirds the size of the state of Rhode Island, about 750 square miles. Now you'd think that the Israelites would be grateful and even in awe of God's provision, but no. Instead of calling God's miraculous food bread from heaven or angel food cake, they simply call it manna, manna. You know what the word manna literally means? What is it? I don't think you could come up with a more irreverent, ungrateful name than that. I mean, imagine if the president uh, of the United States invited you over for a state dinner, not a steak dinner, a state dinner, a lavish meal, and when the butler removes that, that silver dome off of your plate, Imagine saying, what is it? But not only that, let's read what the Israelites further said to the Lord about it in Numbers 11, 1 to 6. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire came down, died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. 
But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. These people are so discontent, so miserable, and just so lacking in hope that they're actually weeping. Their complaint has turned into just moaning and wailing and weeping. And when God rains down on them bread fit for angels, they despise it. They want fish and cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic and maybe a few breath mints to go with it. But you see, like so many things in the Old Testament, it's about more than it seems on the surface. In the New Testament, we learn that the manna is really a picture and a symbol of Jesus, right? Jesus said in John 6.51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So the manna that nourished them and kept them alive in the wilderness those 40 years represented Jesus himself who nourishes and sustains us in our earthly pilgrimage. It's the same with the rock that miraculously gushed water for them to drink. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that The rock was also a picture of Christ. Christ was smitten or struck once on the cross to pay for our sins. But because Moses, in his anger, struck the rock twice with his staff, he messed up the picture that the rock was supposed to portray. And as a result, he was not allowed to go into the promised land. Well, the Israelites are craving meat. And they are not happy. Kind of like the hobbits, you know, when they stay with the vegan elves in Rivendell. All they have to eat there is lettuce. So God decides to give them what they want. And he tells Moses in Numbers 11, 18 to 20, and say to the people, consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and you have wept before him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? So God directs a wind to blow a huge flock of quail right over the camp of the Israelites, and they spend all day and all night and all the next day gathering this this quail. And it says that the person who gathered the least amount, the least amount, gathered 100 bushels. Wow. But there was no acknowledgement, there was no thanksgiving, and there was no praise. 
There was just a multitude of fleshly-minded people greedily stuffing their faces. And then Numbers 11.33 says this, While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Puritan author Thomas Brooks once wrote, A murmurer is an ungodly man. He is an ungodlike man. All our murmurings, which are so many arrows shot at God himself, will return upon our own heads. They reach not him, but they will hit us. They hurt not him, but they will wound us. It is better to be mute than a murmurer. It is dangerous to provoke a consuming fire. Now, this might seem kind of harsh, given our understanding of God's patience and kindness and long-suffering nature. But even God has his limits. <laughs> you know the two Hebrew words translated for grumble? They literally mean a whispered rebellion. A whispered rebellion. The Greek word means to growl. So grumbling is like a whispered, growling rebellion against God. It's something that only an enemy of God would think of doing. And all of this brings us to why murmuring, grumbling, and complaining is so bad. Number one, grumbling is a sin. This is a fundamental reason. God prohibits us. From grumbling. James 5.9 says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. I can't think of another verse in the Bible where it tags a certain sin to the phrase, The judge is standing right at the door. There's some weight here. We may think we're getting away with all of our mutterings, but God hears them all. Every word and every word we ever speak, he takes very seriously. Two, when we grumble, we declare our distrust in God's sovereign rule over our lives. Grumbling reveals an attitude of impatience and arrogance and pride. It's the attitude that says, God, how dare you put me in this situation? I'm too good for this. The Israelites grumbled because the cost of deliverance was greater than the price they wanted to pay. I mean, they were passionate about not being slaves, but beyond that, they had very little interest in anything other than their own freedom and comfort. They were ruled by their desires because they didn't see God as a good shepherd. Three, grumbling keeps us from loving others. We fall, we fail to rightly love others when we complain about them. You can't do both. The classic example is the anger in your heart, you know, when you're in traffic or you're in a traffic jam. We think our own time and comfort and convenience is more important than everyone else's, right? I'm guilty of that too. The Christian standard is to love our neighbor 
the same as we love ourselves. And fourth, grumbling damages our Christian witness. Philippians 2, 14 to 15, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Notice the two reasons behind Paul's exhortation here to not grumble. First, it's the behavior fitting to children of God. As we've already seen, grumbling is a sin. We're called to live blameless lives. And second, a church that doesn't grumble, it stands out. It really does, because complaining is so rampant in this crooked and perverse generation around us that our cheerfulness really gets noticed. And we can then point people to our our all-satisfying God who meets all of our needs And fifth, we never, ever have a justifiable right to complain. Lamentations 3.9 says, Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? It's pure logic. Complaining is all about our expectations. You know, what do I think I deserve? And the Bible has a very clear answer for that. Two words, eternal hell. So anything other than that, no matter how bad or how hard, is infinitely better, right? It's like the story of a young lady who wrote home from college. (laughs) She says, dear mom and dad, sorry I haven't written sooner. It's because I broke my arm. I broke it and my leg when I jumped from the second floor of my dormitory when we had the fire. We were lucky a young service station attendant saw the blaze and called the fire department. They were there in minutes. I was in the hospital a few days. In fact, Spike, the service station attendant, came to see me every day. And because it was taking so long to get our dormitory livable again, I moved in with him. He has been so nice. I admit, though, that I'm pregnant. Spike and I plan to get married just as soon as he can get a divorce. I hope things are fine at home. I'm doing fine, and we'll write more when I get the chance. Love, your daughter Susie. P.S. None of the above is true. But I did get a C in sociology and flunked chemistry. I just wanted to, you to receive this news in its proper perspective. Perspective. We deserve nothing but eternal wrath. I mean, think about the worst life on earth. Think about the worst life on earth is infinitely better than eternal hell. Six, and this one's scary. Our grumbling gratifies It gratifies the devil. Thomas Watson said, our murmuring is the devil's music. It's music to his ears. Why? Because as Arthur Pink once wrote, Satan is ever seeking to inject that poison into our hearts to distrust God's goodness, especially in connection with his commandments. That is what really lies behind all evil, lusting and disobedience. 
a discontentment with our position and portion, a craving for something which God has wisely withheld from us. And he goes on, so reject any suggestion that God is unduly severe with you. Resist the utmost abhorrence, with the utmost abhorrence, anything that causes you to doubt God's love and his loving kindness toward you. Allow nothing to make you question the father's love for his child. God allowed the devil to take away Job's servants, his livestock, his children, and his health. What was Job's response? He did not sin with his lips, it says, by complaining. Job 13, 15, he says, Though God slay me, I will hope in him. Why did he say that? Because he was playing out in his mind the worst case scenario, right? And he was preparing his heart in advance for that possibility. He didn't know what was going to happen. He was preparing his heart in advance for that possibility. Now, in contrast, what does the Bible say about the Israelites? God describes them this way in Psalm 78.8. They were a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. You see, our flesh is always prepared. It's always prepared to react to life's losses and fears and pains and disappointments. We don't know what trouble each day may hold. But if we don't intentionally prepare our hearts to love and trust God, then what happens? When we get broadsided, our flesh is the only part of us that's prepared to react. You see, it's not enough, as we said, for us to just determine to refrain from complaining. It says in Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And saints, you know that one of the most powerful ways to keep our hearts from complaining is to cultivate a lifestyle, a lifestyle of gratitude. Amen? And we could do an entire sermon on gratitude, but let me just leave you with one verse. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I'd like you to leave that verse up on the screen, because we're going to uh, have our question of the week, and so band, you guys can come on up. Chad, are you out there? I need a volunteer to come up on stage and help me with an illustration. You guys want to raise your hands if you are willing victims, I mean participants? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right up here, please. Hi there. What's your name? Emily, and how old are you? All right. Well, Emily, um, I'm going to 
I'm going to affect your circumstances this morning. And I'm going to take some things away from you this morning. Don't be scared. None of this, none of this is painful much. So can you, can you uh, put your hands out uh, kind of like this? Oh, go yeah, go ahead and put... You can, yeah, thanks, you're helping. <laughs> I'm going to tie your legs up right here. All right. So you can't move your hands, you can't move your feet, you're kind of immobile, right? Do you like your sense of smell? No? no? Well, that's a good thing. Do you like your sense of uh, sight? Kind of. Well, I'm going to take your sight away from you this morning. Here, let's see. Got to do it a different way. Okay. <laughs> Comfy? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I need to see that nose because you... You like your sense of smell, but I'm going to take it away from you just for a minute. Okay, so you can't see, you can't smell, you can't move, and I'm going to take away your hearing, or I'm going to severely impair your hearing here. Can you still hear me? Yes. Okay. But not nearly as well, right? So in light of today's message, I took a lot of things away from you, right? But what's the one thing that you can do right now that God has called you to do in light of that last verse that I read? Trust him. And to verbally do what? In all circumstances. We are to do what in all circumstances? Give. Give. Thanks. Okay. So what I want you to do in front of the whole audience this morning is as loud as you can, give, give God thanks. Thank you, God. Amen. There we go. Now, even, even uh, that's a good picture, you know, that we can all keep in our minds today when, when God takes things away from us that are important to us. Just, oh, come on over. You know, we're not done. You do have a prize for that. This is the Action Bible. I think it's almost like a comic book. It's illustrated, and we want you to have that. Thanks for being a great sport. <laughs> All right. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing one last song. Father, your word says, the Lord is my shepherd. But every time we grumble or complain, we deny that truth. We're functioning as our own shepherds, our own determiners of what we need and deserve. But Lord, our very lives and existence belong to you. How much more everything else? God, bring us to that place continually where you are enough. You are enough. You are more than enough. And there is no good thing, you say, that you will ever withhold from us. And may this last song be a declaration of that. And our belief and trust in your all-sufficiency 
and goodness and care. Amen.